Welcome to my basement, everybody, and I hope you've had a fantastic week. Blake and I went all the way to France, and uh, we've done all kinds of uh, incredible traveling, planes, trains, and automobiles. Uh, we had uh, two switches with us. Uh, I'm just going to turn down. There's some audio on my computer here. One second here. Um, one sec here. There we go. Uh, and we brought two switches with us and did a lot of gaming as we went, which was uh, really fun. Um, and uh, and we saw all kinds of uh, French countryside and um, uh, did a lot of sitting on our butts, which is crazy. And Blake uh, just told me the, uh, just a few minutes ago, he says, it sucks that you're tired after you've been on a long plane trip because you've just wasted your whole day just traveling. But uh, you're just you're sitting on your ass and the next day you wake up and you're all kind of tired and exhausted. And I do feel that a little bit. Um, but one of the good things that happened is because we did all of this traveling, um, somehow it worked out that, and there were many, many hours, maybe like 30 hours of traveling because you can't just go on a straight flight to Cannes. You have to uh, either make the choice to fly to Nice, uh, which means you transit through Paris and then you fly to Nice and there's waiting in airports and then Nice is still an hour away by taxi or um, a bus from uh, Cannes or Cannes. Uh, so it takes a little while to get there, whether you plane, we chose to train. And so what we did is we landed in uh, Paris and then trained. And uh, it's much more enjoyable, much more relaxing. But of course, all of the scheduling has to sync up. And so in inevitably, you end up waiting uh, for your your plane or your train. And so it took us forever to get there, landed kind of late at night on a Sunday, had to get up early on a Monday and just start rolling and shooting and interviews and our rundowns. And hopefully you watch some of those this week. Um, and then on the way back, it was more of that. So we got home late last night, but uh, it was it was the right time to kind of just crash and sync up with this time zone. Because the other thing that happens, obviously, it's nine hours ahead in France, and you kind of have to get your body synced up to two different time zones and, and uh, just keep rolling with it. But I feel like I actually got enough sleep yesterday. I was fully exhausted and just crashed hard. Uh, but uh, I woke up today, shot some stuff, already uh, uh, put out the rundown for Friday. And uh, as we did from uh, every, France every day this past week, um, had some Wi-Fi issues. So if you're ever traveling and have to ship videos or audio files of your own, just know that you're going to have to contend with... Um, uh, you know, dealing with the uh, the Wi-Fi availability, uh, Wi-Fi availability out there, whether you're doing it from uh, hotels or restaurants or Starbucks or wherever you are, um, it feels like everywhere we went, they were really sort of policing on the upload speeds. The most we could ever get was like, you know, uh, a megasecond or something. And, and uh, it was hard, man, it was hard to just watch that. Dit, dit, dit. But we got the files over and uh, hopefully you enjoyed the news this week. But this is, uh, this is something that we're starting to do. We've done, this, this is our second weekly uh, rundown recap. It's a, it's a live show that we're going to do here from Vic's Basement. So hello to any new viewers. Um, and also hello to uh, all of the viewers that catch up with this video later on and aren't here for the live show. This is a live show, though. And uh, I am going to, you know, uh, participate in uh, uh, connecting with people in the chat and getting some questions and observations and stuff from people that are watching out here. I've got five big stories. Basically, the way that we're setting this up is we take the biggest news story that we feel from each of the, the five days that we've just run through. So Monday to Friday's five biggest stories. 
and uh, we break them down a little bit more and we talk about them and I want to hear from you guys about uh, your thoughts on them. So whether you're chatting to me live right now or you are um, uh, going to comment later on, either way, we'll read that stuff and uh, it helps this conversation, helps improve this content actually. That's the one thing that I'm really recognizing, getting a lot of comments these days about uh, um, A, how much we're back on track and uh, you know that they're happy to see brand new episodes going up all the time and, and how much content we're putting out there. But also, uh, you know, it's nice to hear that people are appreciating the work that's going into all of this stuff and that they did. Uh, the content that we're putting together. And, you know, I, I have to say that it's getting better all the time right now, which is a Beatles song, uh, but it's getting better all the time uh, in our new format because we have your support. You know, you're watching this stuff and you're reacting to it or you're here live and you're contributing uh, to the, you know, the, the way that this stuff is is changing and developing. And, and uh, it's, it's really quite amazing because we worked for so long in television, just in our bubble, making the stuff, sending it. And then, of course, we would hear from people, um, whether we'd meet them at conventions or sometimes on the street or whatever, you know, or through our chat windows and forums and stuff that we'd have. But the, the, the immediacy of the conversation is incredible. We post something and right away we hear if people found value in it, you know, and the responses and, uh, you know, the things that they got from the video content that we post now. It's, it's really rewarding. It's really amazing. And so thank you once again for watching the material and also for being a part of this material and for being a part of the, the conversation. It's really cool. All right. Well, let's get started with uh, our rundown recap, shall we? And first of all, I'm just going to say hello to a few people here. Hello, Fred Wicks. Good to see you, Mr. Henry, Leaf Fan B, uh, Maitre Mobius 81, Common Boy, uh, Lou Sistema, Lance, Common, uh, got a couple of, uh, Richard Grundy, nice, good to see you, Rich. Blair Farrell, the smart Ogis, Michael Schmucker, uh, Phil Kwan, so great to see all of you guys. I hope that wasn't too loud in your headphones. Um, okay, uh, okay, got a, got a few comments and questions. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pop out my chat, so it's a full screen down here, and I can see more stuff all at once. There we go, much better. Oh, that's great. Okay, now the second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to get our B-roll running live. This is the one-man studio happening right here. And uh, we're going to talk about the, uh, the five big stories of the week. And it started, uh, actually, this was a Thursday reveal, but um, it was definitely the biggest story of the week. The Project Scorpio specs were released, I think, appropriately with the people over at Digital Foundry who obsess over this, you know, the specs and the frame rates and the resolutions. And they just drill down into all that detail. I watch some of that content and read some of that content, and it's fascinating, but sometimes it's like, wow, man, this is so inside baseball, and people just really get into the nuts and bolts on all, all of this stuff uh, as we're showing nuts and bolts and, and uh, uh, memory cards and things like that and, and circuit boards. Um, yeah, this is an impressive-looking console already. I mean, we don't know what software we really are going to run on here. Obviously, we're going to see Halo and, and Forza and, and Gears of War, those the, you know, the, the triple threats from uh, Microsoft. Uh, uh, those will all 
you know, in, in the near term, make a pretty big appearance on this new platform. Um, and they're obviously uh, going out to try to one-up the PlayStation 4 Pro and uh, sort of be the big, you know, man on campus or some other analogy. Some, they want to be the monster console out there. They want to be the best console that you've ever uh, seen and played with, which is all well and good, and it's very exciting. I can't wait to see true 4K as measured and, and uh, um, sort of delivered to us from Xbox. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of questions remain about the pricing and the exact release date and what it will look like and what the name of this machine is actually going to be. And, uh, I, you know, I also feel like Microsoft has, you know, some ground to kind of make back a little bit, not just because of the Xbox One initial launch and uh, some of the, uh, you know, the changes and challenges that they faced with Connect uh, and other things along the way. But I think the really big um, issue that we need to, as a, you know, a community of, of game fanatics, like we all are here, the really big issue that needs to kind of be explored is what exactly are these Xbox exclusives that they're, they're working on? You know, what are they going to bring to the table that is going to make us just freak out about the, uh, this new opportunity to jump into the Microsoft Xbox universe out there. The, you know, the Xbox brand is incredibly powerful, and there have been some amazing games over the years on the original Xbox, the Xbox 360, and there's already been some solid ones for the Xbox One. But, you know, it's pretty easy to see that the Xbox One just does not have that that uh, exclusivity kind of lineup or that exclusive lineup that can measure up to the PlayStation 4. And you know, that honestly gave Nintendo a little bit of an opening, a little bit of a window to kind of come back with their uh, story with the Switch and also with their very strong initial exclusive uh, with, with Zelda. And I think that it could have been a much tougher thing for the Switch to compete against, especially as we're sort of entering into this 4K era, if Microsoft had all of its pistons firing and there was nothing but a big sea of exclusive titles that made the Xbox this machine that, you know, was incredibly powerful, at least as powerful as, as uh, the PlayStation 4 has been. Um, and not in terms of horsepower, I'm talking in terms of uh, uh, diversity in the lineup and exclusivity in the lineup. I, I think it's very hard to challenge the fact that PlayStation has been spending a lot of money locking down some really cool games that you can only play on the PlayStation, uh, PlayStation 4. And uh, Xbox looked like last year they had a very strong showing. It was, um, you know, a great E3 for them. They were, they were talking about uh, the strongest game lineup ever in Xbox history. I don't know if that's true. I feel like um, the news now should be and we can talk about this, but I think the news now from Microsoft should be that we're investing in studios. We're investing in brand new uh, content makers that are going to build us content for this machine. This is a content machine. And the thing that I always think about when I look at the you know hardware specs and these beautiful diagrams and things that, that people put up for us is none of that stuff really matters as a player, you know? Like when you get lost in a video game and, and – I, I think the, the great analogy is our verses that we just shot not too long ago with uh, Horizon and, and Zelda. You know, I mean, if you just stack those up technically and uh, in a case-by-case -case kind of look at their specs and what they offer uh, in terms of fidelity, Horizon just, well, it won in our verses because it won in its production qualities. 
But that's not enough. I think that gamers get lost in experience. Gamers get lost in, in you know, the fantastical and, and uh, the escapism that's offered by these machines. And the, techn- the technology genuinely has to fall away, you know, and that's right from the front end UI all the way through the core game experiences. And I think that is the challenge that, that Xbox needs to surmount. It's not so much that they can build incredible technology. Um, the price on that incredible technology is another challenge that they're going to have to surmount. And I, I think, you know, what's really happened is there's been a lot of Xbox 360 players that were uh, courted by the PlayStation 4 for whatever reason. There's probably multitudes out there. The PlayStation 4 took off faster than the Xbox One did. And um, I think a lot of people have shifted over. And I, I'm not trying to make this like a pro Sony. They've got everything right and everything's going great out there. But my concerns around Xbox are not necessarily that I think this is going to be the most powerful hardware out there. I think, uh, I think it's nuts that the PlayStation 4 Pro doesn't play 4K Blu-rays. Um, I think it's kind of crazy that it has to kind of uh, scale up a lot of content to 4K. Um, I think Xbox has got the right idea to come out strong and say, no, 4K is the new standard for us. It's the standard bearer for us. We want to compete with the biggest and best uh, computer graphic cards that that are out there or close to. Um, And we're going to make a console that kind of pushes this medium forward. Um, But they also, uh, they, they have to bring us the games that justify that, you know, reinvestment back into the Xbox world. But they also now have to... uh, placate and and um, and please all of the current established Xbox players out there. There's a huge community of very happy Xbox One owners out there right now playing the games that they get on there. And there are tons of great third-party games. And there are, you know, lots of, uh, maybe not lots, but several good first-party uh, Xbox One titles out there or Xbox One exclusives. Are they going to, especially if they just bought an Xbox One S, going to be eager to uh, to drop multiple hundreds more on this new platform? And I guess that this is the big uh, the big litmus test, you know. And Sony's gone through it already. They haven't really been. Uh, uh, Sony hasn't really been beating their chests, uh, you know, with press releases and things like that, talking about the success of uh, PlayStation Four Pro. Um, so I don't know how well that's done. I unfortunately don't have that data in front of me. But, um, yeah, I'm a happy owner of the PS4 Pro because, you know, it forced me to get the 4K thing and I've upgraded and everything looks amazing. Uh, but, you know, I still use the, the regular PS4 for different games. And sometimes I, I uh, take it with me when I'm traveling and I just took it up to hotel TVs. And those games still look great on that platform, you know. And the Xbox One S is a, is a, a pretty damn solid machine and games look fantastic on it, especially because it's got HDR kind of output on it. Um, but, you know... I'm curious, did these specs get you guys excited? Are you on board fully with this idea of, uh, you know, these mid-cycle console upgrade or, you know, sort of in-betweeners? Uh, do you think this is a good idea for yourselves personally? Are you looking that now at kind of saving some cash and getting into uh, the Xbox One Scorpio? Let's take... Let's take a a couple of comments, okay? Let me know. Just write, uh, if you can, uh, for all of you you watching live, just write comment in capital letters for us so I can see it a little bit easier. But uh, tell me what your thoughts are on uh, the Xbox One Scorpio. And I actually really hope that they keep that name. I like the Scorpio. I think they've done 
they've given us so much sort of built-in marketing to get us aware of Scorpio. It almost would seem like a shame at this point to drop it fully and call it, what, the Xbox One 2 or the Xbox One more or something? Or the I mean, if they went Xbox One Pro, that would be cheesy as hell. Um, I kind of want them to stick with Scorpio, but let's see what they say. All right. Uh, any comments on Scorpio? Are you guys fired up that the specs get you excited? Um, <laughs> Quaalid says, Scorpio with an exclamation mark. So I think he's excited. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Leaf Fan B just says, you're welcome. EP is amazing. Thank you, Leaf Fan B. Uh, tearing yourself away from Persona 5, I see Johnny. Jo oh, the happy console gamer is here. Hello. Hello, sir. Um, oh, hold on. I've got a lot of comments here. I missed some. Comment. Uh, yes, the Scorpio will be trading up my Xbox One. That is from uh, Curtis Ez... Ez uh, uh, oh, geez, I can't spell your... I can't say your last name. Oh, it looks like Curtis Eric. I bet you your Eric Curtis is your real name, right? Eh? Uh, so he's training, he's in, he's all in. Uh, Lou Sistema says, uh, yes for the Scorpio, we'll be trading as well. Oh, that was Lou that said that. Uh, question, how amazing does Horizon Zero Dawn look on the Pro? Is it worth the upgrade? Um, I think it looks pretty damn amazing. Yeah, I think it's worth, I mean, it's, I think you need more than one game to make the Pro worth the upgrade, but that really kind of, in a very, very profound way, uh, shows off what a great decision it was that you did that upgrade provided of course you have the 4k tv that's the you know that's the disclaimer you have to have already made that jump um and that's that was from curtis eric lucistema's in uh comment the uh this is from mr Brocka rock the specs are fine but i'm concerned about the idea of having this new big tech be forward compatible and not have scorpio only games that don't work on xbox one yeah that's that's the other thing too right it's automatically um uh, kind of got a built-in limiter in it because it has to be backwards compatible with uh, or forward compatible with the current Xbox One consoles that are out there, um, which will placate the existing user base because they don't want to see a whole bunch of new, uh, you know, discs that are on store shelves that have the Xbox One label on them, but they can't play them because they're meant for, uh, you know, the Scorpio. So, you know, from a business standpoint, because they're kind of entering into uncharted territory in the console space, it makes sense but yeah, it's kind of a drag that you're getting a machine that really almost could be the next machine and just sort of start to distance itself from the Xbox One, but they're forced to not be that machine. But I'm kind of curious if Microsoft is looking at this as the replacement and whether they've kind of Trojan horsed in some technology that will kind of supplant and just get people thinking this is the this is the only Xbox like in two years is this going to be the only Xbox I mean one of the big things that this is uh, really introducing and I think PlayStation is is in this sphere as well is um, the idea of the console as an I as a, a network or as a concept more than a physical piece of technology um, the PS4 products that are going to be streaming on PS now on PlayStation now um, kind of suggest that, you know, these hardware guys are looking at the success of companies like Netflix and saying, well, you know, this is a, um, a race that we can't just be on forever. Eventually, people are going to have so many screens and so many computers in their lives that they're going to be able to, you know, access content like this in a million different ways. We've got to start sort of planning for that. And I think that's what this machine does more than anything is, is um, it kind of 
it puts up a little arrow sign, a little neon arrow sign saying this is the way that it's going to go. You know, I think uh, there will be hardware refreshes and upgrades for the, you know, foreseeable future, but eventually the, this play anywhere kind of concept is going to exist uh, probably first with PlayStation. I mean, it already exists if you count the PC with uh, with the Xbox uh, and PC sort of hybrid stuff that you can get out there. But that's not for every game. I think that's the full, only for their first party. But it's a it's a crazy sort of uh, concept to kind of get over, especially for us lifer console gamers out there. You know that have been used to these little walled gardens of uh, of gaming fun and and uh, you know content sort of creation. Pretty soon, we're going to be able to just port that material anywhere, and I think that's, I think that's the the sort of future proofing that they're sort of building into the Xbox One Scorpio. Yeah, it's it's very it's very interesting, right? Because they are the the hardware manufacturers building consoles, gaming consoles are competing with PC for sure. They have been for years, but they're also competing against each other, and they're competing now against the the Android and iOS uh, sort of uh, uh, communities and networked uh, gadgets and things that are out there. All of those little set top boxes, like the Apple TV, none of them have been huge, but they all have the propensity. They all have the ability to um, even smart TVs just kind of capture you and keep you locked in, right? So. Um, there's a lot of these external forces that have been coming in on games that we have known them, the traditional gaming industry, for a number of years. And, I, I, you know, it's uh, – I think that all they, all they can do is things like this, is experiment, you know, and, and see if the consumers are going to follow along. I, it's, I, after this show is done, I won't have time to, uh, to look all of this up unless somebody wants to tell me. I'm very curious about the PS4 Pro sales. I want to know if Sony is excited, if they're happy. I, yeah, I can guarantee that there won't be a PS4 Pro Pro at, uh, <laughs> at uh, E3 this year to kind of counter the, uh, the response of uh, you know, all of the Xbox Scorpio information that's out there. But I wouldn't be surprised if there is a, a PlayStation 4 revision next year or, you know, in 2019, um, or if they go straight to the PlayStation 5 because the Pro didn't do as well. Uh, it's, this is really interesting. Like, things are changing big time in the traditional as-we-know-it console space. I mean, Xbox tried to do a lot of stuff with the One launching, right? Like the always-on connectivity and the uh, uh, using the cloud sort of... Uh, uh, you know, the cloud to kind of build better game technology and, and build in better back uh, end stuff for graphics and all that stuff. A lot of that stuff was just sort of pushed away. Even the improved Connect with all of its improved sensors and all that. All that. They, they tried so many things and they kind of just went, well, we'll just be a gaming machine. Um, but I think, you know, these, these console makers have just got to build these boxes that are they're supercomputers, man. They're really, really powerful devices, and they have so many threats. It's unbelievable. Okay, a couple more comments. Uh, which console will developer uh, will developers target when making games? That's from Varuna X. Well, I guess they have to target the Scorpio, and then they um, they built in all kinds of uh, scale down technology. I don't think it would make a lot of sense to. I mean, I, the way that games have been made for the last several years have been. Uh, or for the last, I don't know, 15 years, ever since they went to 3D, is that they would, um, they would, you know, do all kinds of 
much higher resolution texturing and, and a lot more fine detail. Usually that stuff would work um, as these games would get ported to the PC. And then they would find ways to scale them down for the console specs and, and uh, uh, sort of stream them off of the discs at a, at a slightly compromised resolution or visual fidelity. Um, but they would try to target the best that they can. And there have been lots of third-party and, and middleware um, uh, companies that have come up through the, through the business helping these external developers uh, find ways to streamline their process that way and, and you know, configure these rich, high-fidelity PC-type games um, and make them move well on the PlayStation 2 and the Xbox, uh, the, the original Xbox and so forth, you know. Um, but yeah, this is interesting now because your your high spec. I think this might have a, a great effect on the PC world, right? Because suddenly, um, especially if the install base is significant for something like the Scorpio, suddenly your developers are not going to want to uh, go the full meal deal at resolution and then have it scaled down to Xbox One Scorpio and then have to scale it down. You know, maybe the, they will just sort of hit that middle ground of the Xbox One Scorpio. So the high-end PC users will, uh, I mean, it all depends on the on the sort of install base and the, and the success rate of the Scorpio, but the high-end PC users might start to see a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, some ground lost on uh, on developers reaching for the stars out there. It is unimaginably expensive for these companies to build all of these assets. You know, I mean, we're going to get into another story, uh, which you can probably guess pretty soon about that. Um, but the art demands are insane in today's video games. And there's just this huge burgeoning industry that's developed around that, all of this external development that's out there with teams of people specializing on details and, you know, chairs and buildings and, and uh, trees and all kinds of stuff out there. And there's lots of technologies that will auto-populate and all this um, that are run by companies that make a ton of money because they've crafted a tree-building uh, piece of technology. But if you... You know, you sit down and you kind of think it through just the, the resolution and the scale and the demands. And now we're quadrupling the pixel count with this 4K machine. Uh, what does that mean in terms of human beings uh, making these products, but also consuming them? You know, now, if you make a 4K video game for the Xbox One Scorpio, let's say it's a 4K Halo, are four times as many people going to buy the game because will or will it take four times as many artists to uh, add in the detail that you get the, the full visual benefit of a 4k display to make it all worthwhile you know like this is uh, this is math on math on math on math, you know lots of layers of, of, uh, of trying to figure out you know the the practicalities of building for technology at this scale. It's, it's very interesting. And then you see something like uh, Zelda, which I keep referencing right now, a, a game that is, uh, you know, arguably um, one of the most important games that's come out in recent times, but also, you know, a game that's beautiful and great looking, but incredibly stylized um, and certainly not, you know, anything approaching photo real or you can smartly see where the decisions were made to kind of scale back the expense and scale back the... Uh, the amount of detail, um, yet there's a tremendous amount of detail in its visual scope, you know, and uh, that's a that's a very interesting game to kind of sort of juxtapose against something like Forza, you, you know, thinking about a Forza game in 4K.
Uh, very, very interesting. Uh, <laughs> Happy Console Gamer says, do you think when we get uh, Metal Gear Survive on the Scorpio and will it change life as we know it? Metal Gear Survive will change your life. Happy Console Gamer. I predict that will be the day when you change the name of your channel to Pissed Off Console Gamer. Okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I think we're, we're, into, we're into some uh, very interesting uh, time, you know, ahead of us here. I think E3 and, and the push to 4K is going to be a, a big deal. Um, I'm curious if many of you have decided that this is your year, you're going to get 4K, or if you've already bought, if you're into this idea of 4K video gaming, or are you taking, you know, maybe a more wait-and-see kind of approach on the Pro, on the Scorpio, uh, and on 4K TVs, because you're happy right now with what 1080p has to offer. I'll tell you something. I mean, I... I, I I have some great tech now because of the the, uh, the pro forcing me to get this 4K machine, and I, but I still look at and play a lot of 1080p material. You know, like I play the Switch, I play Zelda on the big TV, and it looks fantastic to me. I play regular Blu-rays or I stream regular uh, television shows or something like that, and they still look fantastic to me. Um, you know, I still I I think this move from Standard definition to HD was a much bigger deal than it is from sort of 1080p to 4K. And, uh, you know, that's, I think that's a big challenge for all of this. But, you know, obviously these companies can't stand still. They have to kind of progress. But again, you pointed something like the Switch sales rocketing and, and uh, Nintendo being very happy. And you kind of have to say, well, that was probably a pretty smart decision to hold back and not overspec your thing and not try to kind of be one step ahead of the competition with technology. Um, you can kind of manage your costs on every part of that business a, a lot easier than it, it's going to be for companies like Sony and, and Microsoft now that are in this space, you know. Um, okay. Uh, let's talk now about our next story. We'll get into some more 4K stuff, which happens to be the Switch. So we'll go into this right now. So the, uh, the other big story that we had this week was the um, uh, manufacturing costs were estimated by a Japanese um, publication. I forget the name of the publication. I apologize. Uh, but they broke down all of the manufacturing costs per um, technology item within the Switch console. And they figured that it was uh, about 257 bucks of your two, U.S. of your 299 console price, uh, which doesn't leave a lot of headroom for uh, uh, huge profits for everybody, particularly when you consider that there are uh, you know partners involved at every step of the way to get you that machine, like all the retail partners and shipping and all that stuff. Um, but um, it is lower than the you know. It's, it's lower than a lot of console costs have been. There have been a lot of consoles launched that have taken a loss. And I believe that the uh, Xbox with Kinect configuration uh, at the price that it sold was a loss leader for Microsoft. Now, obviously, what happens with these companies is the, the real money and the reason why we always have console wars. I don't know if everybody knows this, but the real reason why we have console wars and why people aren't willing to kind of get together and collaborate and say, well, let's build an all-in-one machine and then developers will only have one spec to develop for and the games will be incredible. This has been my uh, utopian dream forever. Um, and it's kind of envisioned in the real player one fiction. Uh, but the reason why they don't do that is because the real money in the, in the video game industry on the console manufacturing side is in the licensing deals. The companies get money for every game that they 
uh, publish on their platform. So they get to decide what machine, what games are going to come to their machine. And there's a, um, and that's third party and everything, right? They have a real sort of uh, ability to protect what product comes through their console. Uh, but uh, they get to, to decide there. They get uh, sort of manufacturing cost slice and, um, and they participate in some cases, especially if they front some money for uh, development costs or whatever, or exclusive or exclusivity. Uh, they get to participate in the um, in the sales, right? So, if you factor in a game like Grand Theft Auto Three, oops, there's a there's our next story right there. Uh, if you factor in a game like Grand Theft Auto Three, that was a PlayStation Two exclusive. I'm gonna go back to the Switch graphics here. One second. Um, that was a PlayStation 2 exclusive that Rockstar uh, published on the, on the machine, and it made a fortune for Sony. It made a huge difference in their bottom line, you know, and uh, the risk was all worth it. So the way that licensing breaks down, and it may be different depending on the quantities crafted and built, uh, and it may also be very different now in, um, you know, with regards to digital, is that the third-party publishers pay a per-unit price upfront. Um, and it's dependent on how many uh, discs are pressed or how many cartridges get made. And it can be very expensive, you know. So um, uh, you know, that's why we have companies go out of business when they take a bet that is the wrong way. Not only do they spend a lot of money on building a game, per se, but they also have then said, okay, well, let's buy a million copies of this this game on DVD and and they have to pay not only for the pressing cost I guess probably the pressing costs are built into the licensing deal but it's like seven bucks a, a DVD let's say or ten bucks a DVD everybody's got different pricing schemes um, I do know that silicon cartridges used to be and now are again because of the switch a little more expensive than uh, pressing to CD but that's an actual you know cost that publishers have always had to kind of maintain and that's an actual um, income source that each one of these console manufacturers obtains. And that's why they will always challenge each other. It's If, if you can get enough of a market share and you have enough of a, a partner uh, uh, collection, you can make tremendous money uh, by having spent the R&D to build these machines and get them out to, uh, to the public, right? Now suddenly there's an audience for this stuff and now you've got this... this uh, pay-to-play kind of, uh, uh, you know, platform that you offer back to, uh, to partners. And, and, you know, I mean, you, you start doing the math on that, and, and uh, they're making millions and millions of dollars, even if, you know, uh, the console is a distant third, you know, or it's, uh, it, 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 it isn't working as well as, as your company would want it to, you know. And that's honestly, I think, why Nintendo... Um, I mean, they have great cultural pride and, and as they should have, feel like uh, they are fantastic at building these, these platforms that engage an audience. They've got in a, that built-in uh, brand equity that is uh, irreplaceable um, and they have this ability to reinvent themselves. They chart like this on the sales of their machines. Um, but that is why they haven't said, look, let's go third party or let's just give all of this hardware manufacturing up and just so, uh, you know, solely focus on just bringing our games to multiple machines. Um, there's a, uh, uh, you know, a huge chunk of their business is, is uh, publishing on third party, but that's also or publishing third party stuff. But that's also why it's so important for them to build these great relationships out there. But anyways, um, 
<laughs> Fred Wicks, yes, I'm on board. You're killing my wallet. PSVR, PS4 Pro, 4K TV, Nintendo Switch. No to Scorpio. So that's the first no from Fred Wicks, who spends a fortune on games. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, in terms of, you know, the smart way that Nintendo makes their machines is they don't lose money on their consoles, and then they make money on the games that they sell. And they make money on the third parties that they can attract to their machines through the licensing deals. So um, it has been an incredible hardware business for them. Now, obviously, the Nintendo business has also had to face a tremendous amount of competition out there. And they've also conceded that they have to be in places like mobile and stuff. Uh, But uh, uh, it's clear that there is a lot of wind in the sails over at Nintendo. People want the Switch. It's flying off the shelves. It's still hard to get one. Um, I'm going to have some thoughts on uh, the Switch a month later and also from the intense amount of traveling. I think we're going to do another live stream on Monday uh, about uh, um, the games that you should get after Zelda, but also, um, you know, a month of actual real world experience with this console. But it's a uh, it's a. you know, I think it, it's interesting that you can start to extrapolate all of this information based on what their hardware costs, you know, like it's an incredibly well-run business. They've stumbled. They've had some things that haven't done as well as they want. Um, they've certainly got uh, concerns about consumer appetite for their work and for the uh, the products that they put out there. Um, but you can also see the genius of it when it's all clicking and working and, and everything is... Uh, is uh, going as planned or better than planned. Um, you know, they're a company that's efficient, well-run. They, they understand their value and, uh, and they keep trying to surprise us, you know, and you have to applaud all of that. And there's a reason why everybody wants that switch. Now, uh, it's going to be interesting to see a similar kind of breakdown on the Pro, on the PS4 Pro. I haven't seen that. I don't know how much it all costs. Uh, to build all of that stuff. Uh, but I'm very, very interested to see what all of the the actual costs for the Xbox Scorpio will be because uh, I think where they're targeting the the sort of output of the uh, the Scorpio right now is about, uh, you know, one of the top-end graphic cards, which is going to cost just for the graphic card in the $600, $700 range. So if they've got a console out there that's likely going to be 400 bucks. I would imagine in uh, the states and 500 bucks up up in Canada. I would imagine we're hovering in that price range. Still cheaper than a top end graphics card. That's going to be kind of impressive, you know. But how are they affording that? How are they uh, Microsoft going to be able to uh, you know get all of those components, all of that hardware together, including probably some revamp controllers and everything? I wouldn't be surprised if. Uh, some of the, uh, the the work that's gone into building that pro controller that they've put out for the Xbox One becomes the standard controller for probably not one-to-one, but close uh, for this new machine, right? They've got to show us all the fancy new upgrades that way. So expensive componentry. Um, but uh, yeah, I, you know, I think when Nintendo didn't publicly put all this information out there, by the way, around the Switch uh, manufacturing costs, but when you break it down, you really start to see the craftiness of that company. Incredibly smart company. Um, all right. Blade Blur says, I know Sony's making an OLED 4K this year, so I might get it if the lag in- input is low enough. I mean, that's the other side of this equation too, right? 
good comment, Blapler, is that the uh, companies like Sony are invested in lots of other ways as well, right? So they um, they have this unit, this PlayStation unit, that may you know be a bit of a lost leader for them in terms of hardware costs and and uh, uh, consumption that way. Uh, but then they might make it back on on pushing people into their new division, right, or into the, another division of, of 4K displays and stuff like that. Uh, but Nintendo has always just been like, this is what we do. We're focused on this. Um, and we aren't going to diversify and build a whole bunch of different types of products and things like that. We make game, we make console games, and we make handheld games. Now they kind of have a consolid, consolidated their their story a little bit that way. And but they've also branched out, and now they're doing mobile, uh, you know, software development, which is also bringing in a lot of money for those guys. Uh, Errol Yu says, if it's five hundred bucks US. For the Scorpio, which would be a very expensive console, I think that uh, a lot of people would be, I think, a little put off if it's that much money. Because uh, you're right, um, er- Errol, it would be 650 bucks probably in Canada. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be pricey. And very interesting to see. Errol Use is saying, is Switch going to kill off the 3DS? Not this year. They've got a bunch of games coming out. And... Uh, uh, there's going to be a lot of stories around 3DS product this year, uh, and there aren't that many product, you know, games to uh, fire all the PR cylinders up for uh, the Switch this year. I mean, there's there there are a handful of, of big ones from Nintendo, but I think there's been a lot of people, um, you know, in the publishing side of things that have uh, taken a wait and see kind of approach to see you know, how the Switch was going to be um, sort of taken at the consumer level. Now that we kind of know that people are into this and it's selling well and, uh, you know, the hype really isn't settled down too much. They've had some issues to contend with for sure. The, uh, this new warp gate thing that, that has come out where uh, some people have su- said that their Switches have been uh, warping in the middle due to the, in, the intense heat of the Switch sitting into, inside of the uh, dock. Um, that's a little, uh, that's a little concerning. I had, that hasn't happened with me at all. Um, there's also been the scratches on the screen from placing it into the dock. Uh, and so people have been sort of going back and forth about whether they need screen protectors or not. And then there's also been the lag input on the, uh, on the Joy-Con, right? So there has been this, a little bit of bad press around, uh, the Switch, but I don't know if that's damp, dampened any kind of enthusiasm for the console. I think it's still selling incredibly well. Um, and I think they're still very hard to get out there. So I wouldn't be surprised that we're going to see some pretty big um, Switch announcements at, uh, at, at E3 this year. But that was cool to see, you know, um, the, the sort of cost breakdown so soon. And one of the interesting things about it is the, uh, the, the cost to build the Joy-Cons because of all those intricate motors, the HD rumble that they call it over there. Uh, those things are actually almost one-to-one. They cost almost as much as they sell for. And they sell for quite a bit. They cost 50 bucks uh, each controller, right? The pack-in is, is 100 bucks or something like that. But uh, um, I guess they make it back. And when you, when you think about that, I mean, you're paying 100 bucks for those two controllers, and you're paying 
90 bucks, which is probably because they sell the dock as a separate standalone thing. That's probably the biggest margin that they have. That dock doesn't have a lot of circuitry or componentry in it. It's very simple. It's just an HD upgrade thing. They've got a little converter deal in there that converts the the uh, the signal that's pumped out of the handheld switch tablet and upconverts it as best as it can to uh, a 1080p screen. Um, but that's not that complicated, the technology there, and it's just cheap kind of plastic. It's not great. I mean, it doesn't blow you away, the manufacturing on the uh, on the switch dock. And then you think that, okay, well, if they're selling that for almost 100 bucks, um, you know, that leaves a, in a $299 price point, that leaves just like slightly over 100 bucks for the tablet part of it, which is amazing, right? That's, that's the guts. That's the machine. The actual system is already not a very expensive item within this, you know? And it's uh, using some off-the-shelf technologies as well. But Nintendo... In, in a savvy maneuver, has made all of this stuff feel fresh and new and, uh, and uh, you know, a perfect partnership with Zelda, which has been great. I got a comment here from uh, Brockerock, Mr. Brockerock. Credit Nintendo also for reaching out to great indies and getting the flood of software to switch to prevent the Steam flood we've seen the last few years. Yeah, very, very smart. There's been a couple of uh, um, disappointing games already pop up on the eShop on the Switch Um uh, you know, I'm looking at you, Neo Geo games that you're selling for 10 bucks at a pop that we've bought on every system known to man for the last 20 years. Um, and there are a couple other weird ones on there. But yeah, there's already some really fantastic. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Master Blaster Zero and, um, you know, the Shovel Knight on, on the Switch is phenomenal. Um, and there's a couple of other ones as well that I'm going to talk about. But I'm going to save that for uh, our, my video on Monday. But yes, definitely cool comment. That Nindy, that Nindy's event that we went to, we posted uh, um, some videos about it. Uh, Jose interviewed the organizer for an overview of all the all the indie games that were on display. But that was a really fantastic event, and it really kind of uh, showcased. Um, and there's this kind of freshness with Nintendo, you know. Like I don't know if many of you have noticed this, but they uh, they just opened up their treehouse. Um, they've got a blog now on the Nintendo site talking to Treehouse employees about their experiences working at Nintendo. That's really cool. Uh, Behind-the-scenes stuff on Zelda, the videos that they posted, also fantastic. Uh, I think this there's this awareness that they need to open up a little more at Nintendo, and uh, it's been cool to see. And that includes with their partners as well, right, like getting – independence on board and now hopefully courting some really big stories for us to talk about at E3 about third-party support. But, uh, ah, here's one from Blade Blur. Do you, do you think Nintendo should have waited to release the Switch for maybe the summer? No, I think they, they, they had, uh, you know, the, the, the fiscal year, the end of the year type stuff to deal with. The Wii U is, is uh, deal, you know, it's kind of done at this point. Um, it is done. Uh, and software had totally dried up for it. So it was time for them to kind of, you know, show that it, they had something in the fire. The, the, the pairing with Zelda as well, you know, that game was coming out in the spring. It's, it's a perfect way to ship a system when you have a game of that caliber. You know, I, I would argue that every console needs uh, or would w like to have a game of that caliber like a game of the year contender shipping with the platform is a big deal and they did that you know and maybe the game of the decade contender you know um it's 
it's pretty phenomenal. It was a great way to kind of put rocket boosts on the uh, on the idea, on the concept of the switch, and all of the marketing, all of this sort of outreach stuff. I mean, the thing that I put together with um, the trip out to Toronto to try the hands-on with the switch. Nintendo had never done anything like that before, and it was a fantastic mini E3 just for you know the the press that was out there or in Toronto to cover that stuff. But they also opened it up to the public. Brilliant, you know, it was a really really cool thing, and uh, yeah, I know. I think that I think they've done it right. I mean, they they've obviously said, look, we're not going to compete head to head against specs. They're not releasing the 4K version of this thing, uh, you know, and and we're not going to try to play the 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 sort of chess match that Sony and Microsoft are playing right now. This is our own weird little sort of corner of this, but you're only going to be able to play games like this over here. Um, and it was it was smart. I mean, now they sold out. They keep selling out. By the time the holidays roll around, they're going to be able to bundle this with software. Uh, likely, one two switch will have stopped selling by then, and it will be included as a pack in. Um, but I think they've, they've really, I mean, the, the numbers kind of speak for themselves. I think the, the major issue that they've done is they haven't been able to make enough. You know, I think that if they had more on the shelves, more would sell and there would be more happy people, um, sort of that own stock in Nintendo, but also more happy people signing on uh, contracts right now to make more games for the switch. And, you know, I, I think what's important to say too, about all of this stuff is that. This sort of orchestrated uh, bullshit battle, this console hardware war thing that has has been around since the you know the uh, Sega Nintendo days, is so ridiculous because they they all need to succeed. It's never a good thing when you see a console manufacturer floundering. Yeah, there can be a limit on how many you know pieces of hardware and tech are out there for sure, but you know the developers that are going to be inspired to build all of these games and keep making things that blow us away, they need to see that there's interest in this stuff. They need to see that the consumers are going to line up for these these pieces of hardware, these things that uh, these console makers make. Now, they their job is to make stuff that the public is going to want and to kind of, you know, sort of hit that moving target of what people are looking for and when and price point and all that stuff. Uh, but it's never a good thing to see like the Wii U just flailing, you know, that's just bad for business for the entire video game business. So I'm just, and now I think we have a, to be legitimately concerned about what Xbox is going to do. You know, I mean, there's a lot of momentum around Nintendo and there's a lot of momentum around Sony, uh, you know, but now it's Xbox's sort of open door to kind of blow us away with their reveal, not just on the hardware, but what are they going to say? Um, about the exclusivity and the, you know, the awesome Xbox-only experiences for the Scorpio. But I want them all to succeed, and I hope that every single person that's watching this also feels the same way. I think that if there are, you know, any people out there that are just loyalists and have joined the fan clubs of any one of these, these hardware manufacturers, you're kind of missing out on, well, you're missing out on experiences that are exclusive to these other, uh, other machines, but you're also missing out on the point that the business needs more people playing it. It needs more uh, positive stories. It needs more um, interest and investment 
from a wider and an ever-growing public out there if we want to play better games. Now, some of those better games might not be available for the platform you have chosen, but um, that inspiration needs to happen in the games business. It needs to happen from, uh, you know, people chasing all of this stuff. Otherwise, you know, we, we risk... Because there's so much money being made by these free-to-play games out there, we risk transformation. You know, we risk sort of a lot of resignation. A lot of developers saying, "Well, the, you know, this idea of, of, you know, selling a finished good that's a work of art that we've all labored and on, and and we wanted to kind of uh, push the medium forward." That doesn't really make sense anymore because people aren't buying X console or Y console or B console. But over here, you know, like you can just spend a 60th of the development costs and and uh, buy your audience, your initial audience, and, and then uh, find some whales. I don't know if you guys have heard this term out there, but there are whales out there that a lot of free-to-play games go after. And whales mean these are people that get obsessed with uh, some of the addictions that are available in free-to-play games, and they just keep spending and spending and spending. And in a lot of cases, these whales are where these corporations make so much profit and there's a lot of work being done to build <laughs> games that attract the whales. And, uh, uh, that's scary. You know, games by analytics is just a scary kind of concept. So I, you know, I hope that you're like me and you want all of these platforms to, uh, to do well. And you're also like me and you're applauding this reversal of fortunes that seems to be occurring with the Nintendo switch blade blur. You are awesome, man. Thank you so much. We did have a fantastic trip to France. Um, okay, let's move on to uh, uh, Thorazine 666. I, we did endure, enjoy Can. It was uh, it was very fast. It was like we we got it took about a day and a half to get there. We did three days of bang, 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 and then we got back on planes and trains and automobiles, and and uh, here we are back in the studio. But it was awesome, and the weather was perfect. You saw some of the uh, the rundowns and questions and stuff. Hopefully, you've watched some of those. It was absolutely gorgeous out there. Oddworld Games gets a heart from the Last Disciple. Yeah, I love those guys. Um, Uh, Clayton Blair has a good comment about Mario Run costing too much for a mobile game. Yeah, I think there's it's a I I didn't review that. I almost did. I almost reviewed that game. Um, but yeah, you're right. I think that it, there was an expectation that you would get a lot more for that ten bucks. It, it was ten bucks in Canada or fifteen bucks in Canada. Yeah, way too expensive. Um, but it wasn't even the price, I think, so much as the Nintendo brand. You would just and the Mario brand. You would expect so much more out of that, you know, for that first ever Mario experience in mobile. It just felt like a tiny dip, like a tiny little toe dip. Like Nintendo said, "Well, we'll give this a try." But they really, and you know, you can see the business sense behind it. But imagine, yeah, I guess that. I mean, you you don't want to kill your hardware business is really what it is, right? I'm sure they could have made something incredible on that platform, but then people would have gone, well, that's enough. I can just play my Mario like this. I don't need to go buy no Switch. I can just play my Mario on my my, my iPhone. I don't know why they have a weird accent like that or play their games like this. Uh, anyways, do you think, uh, Mr. Brockerock, do you think the power of the Switch will show a revitalization of the PlayStation Portable? Hmm. I think that's going to be... Nothing that's answered this year at E3, but if the, if the Switch continues on this momentum, 
because it's outselling everything, I think, right? It's outselling a lot of the core stuff that uh, that Nintendo has brought to market, all of their previous machines, including the Wii. Um, I don't think it's outselling the PlayStation 4 and, the, and this. And I, I think that probably largely has to do with the fact that Nintendo can't manufacture enough Nintendo Switches to meet the demand right now. But if the uh, sales continue unabated for the Switch and there is enough software and enough momentum around this thing, I would be shocked if we didn't see an answer from PlayStation and maybe even from Microsoft. You know, an Xbox One or PlayStation 4 portable would be freaking amazing. Uh, but it, ha- it would have to do what, what Switch is doing and play the exact same games that you can play at home. You can take them with you. That would be amazing. Uh, Thorazine 666, Nintendo Switch, first console I bought since the 64. I mean, there's a lot to comments like that. I laugh at my uh, black magic like my accent. Sorry about that. I went off in my own little world. I was putting a scene together for you guys. Okay, let's let's move on to. Uh, I'm going to try not to embarrass myself with more accents. Uh, let's move on to the next story, which is very exciting as well. And I'm going to try not to ruin anything um, in that story. I'll just get past this Nintendo B-roll. That was the other cool thing is they had fantastic marketing on the Nintendo uh, commercials, huh? I can see the footage that you see on this TV over here. Okay, so uh, Invincible. This is Robert Kirkman's other lesser-known comic title. Oh, no. Sorry, wrong. This is The New Warriors. Invincible. Just ignore that Invincible comments. I'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, The New Warriors, which I don't really know too much as a comic title. I thought it was Invincible. Dumb me. Uh, But I do know Squirrel Girl is going to be on this new TV show um, called The New Warriors. It's coming to what was ABC Family. It's called... uh, uh, what the hell is it called now? Fresh or something like that? It's some new name. But um, it's a young adult uh, sort of leaning in this more comedic kind of... How could you not be more comedic if you've got Squirrel Girl as your uh, as your hero? But, you know, obviously these are going to be super-powered Marvel characters in a brand new show. They didn't pilot it. They just went straight to series. So there's a lot of, uh, uh, I guess, su- support at this uh, at this ABC network that this is going to be a hit with their young crowd. It's kind of skewed to a young adult audience. And I think what this suggests, as my Invincible story will suggest, is that the, uh, the superhero, uh, superheroes aren't a genre anymore, you know, in terms of the way that we're consuming stories in this world anymore. I think Daredevil or um, um, Deadpool kind of illustrated that as well. You can, you can deviate. You can, they don't just have to be cool origin stories and and uh, stories of you know teams of superheroes coming together to defeat some huge multigalactic or intergalactic uh, uh, giant foe or something like that. We can have quirkier stories. We can have uh, super heroic characters um, that are kind of grappling with lots of identity issues and and uh, their value and their worth and and especially if this is part of the MCU which I believe it is I'm sure there's going to be a lot of uh, uh, you know extrapolating on this on the uh, on the stories that were kind of teased out with uh, um, uh, Hawkeye in the Avengers right like Hawkeye in the Avengers he's always sort of questioning I think his ultimate value because he's not super super powered not super powered like the other guys are and uh, uh, I think that's a very interesting kind of line for for story development, you know? Like, how does Squirrel Girl, 
who I understand is quite powerful. I haven't, I'm not like a Supergirl aficionado. Uh, I don't know that much about her, but I, 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 I would imagine characters like Supergirl or other lesser powered or lesser known characters would have some, uh, you know, real sort of uh, uh, some comparison issues. You know, when they look at Thor or the Hulk or Spider-Man or something, they, they would probably feel like they're, they don't measure up, you know? And I think there are going to be some interesting stories that way. And also just... Uh, delving into this idea of people with abilities, um, how they interact and deal with the real world around them. And I think that the Netflix shows have been fantastic at, at getting us um, content around those lines. I think they've done a really good job of keeping these things very realistic. Um, not a big fan of what I saw of Iron Fist, however, but The Defenders is coming soon as well. Fred Wicks, dude. Thank you for all the years you've spent in my living room, and please don't pimp the Scorpio to me as I am weak. Has the Switch reignited any amiibo purchasing? The Zelda line is art. Fred Wicks. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, man. There's, there is a lot to be excited about, you know? I mean, that's, that's, the, uh, that's why I'm doing this. I love this stuff, you know? There is tons and tons of things that uh, just fire me up. Um, I, I will try not to pimp the Scorpio to you too much. Let's see the Scorpio do that, all right? Let's see Xbox do that. Uh, I hope it's amazing. I'm very, as a 4K TV owner, I am very excited to pump another 4K console through this television setup and, and, and see what it can do, especially because that's what we've heard so far of Microsoft's marketing on this is that, oh, yeah, PS4 is pretty good, but where do you see what we can do? And, of course, we have a long time until we can see what they can do. But, uh, I mean, it was crazy to announce the Xbox One S and the Scorpio in the same press conference last year, wasn't it? I mean, how many, how many E3 conferences have we seen where they've announced two machines? You know, I guess Sony did that with PlayStation VR and Pro and Slim. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's been kind of crazy. But I am psyched for this new Warriors show. I, uh, I haven't been exhausted, even though there's been a, now disappointments. Iron Fist, I'm looking at you. Have the uh, superhero world has not been exhausted to me, whether it's in comic book form or whether it's in movie form or television show form. I haven't been able to keep up with everything. And one thing that I did do on the road is uh, I got mostly caught up with The Flash and Arrow. I uh, watched multiple episodes of both and uh, was shocked at how good they both still are. I mean, they've had some, every show has this, every single show where you get a couple seasons in and then it starts to go all over the place in terms of quality from one episode to the other. And certainly there's been some lamish Flash episodes and some lamish Arrow seasons at this point. But I feel like uh, I was really kind of, Arrow in particular, I was not on board with this new super team that they were building with all of these, you know, street tough characters sort of introduced as these uh, um uh, you know, kids that want to learn from Arrow, but somehow they've all kind of grown on me. And by the 18th episode or 16th or 17th, 18th episode, it's like, wow, man, I'm I actually starting to care about these characters. And then some of the old characters are sort of looping back in and uh, the soap opera uh, qualities of, of Arrow are hard to miss, but it's actually pretty damn solid. And the fight scenes, especially when you see them contrasted against the lame fight scenes in Iron Fist, are still pretty amazing in, uh, in Arrow. And the Flash, I think, just, 
has really kind of shown that you can be like they had a I don't know if you guys know this, but they had a musical episode of The Flash this year with uh, a crossover with Supergirl and uh, Flash characters. And there are also some Arrow characters in there. And everybody was singing and dancing because so much of the cast is a triple threat that way. You know, they can act and sing and dance. Uh, some of the like Flash and Supergirl have come from Glee, the TV show. And it was a bit cheesy, but it was like, you know, how cool is it that they can take a risk like this and uh, charm you, you know? And the singing and the dancing was okay. And and uh, and then they went back to their normal crime fighting stuff. But, uh, you know, it's, it's impressive. It's impressive that we have this bounty of choice in this genre. I'm not going to call it a genre. So you guys had to help me with this and not let let me call superheroes a genre, because it's not. I mean, they're breaking it down in so many different ways, you know? Um, but I, I'm still a fan, you know? I'm still a fan of superheroes in uh, in the visual medium, and I'm looking forward to seeing what New Warriors is all about. I have kind of checked out of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and I've heard that it gets way better, and I should get back to it. I just haven't had time. And I've checked out a little bit on uh, on Gotham as well. I've... I've uh, I've got many episodes still to watch of that, of seasons that I purchased, but I, I just haven't been as, you know, even me, a huge Batman fan, I just haven't been as uh, compelled to go back into that world. And I think it's because Netflix has done so well with Marvel and uh, The Flash uh, and Arrow and Legends of Tomorrow. I like that show a lot, too. And there, now there's a Black Lightning show that's on the way, too. Uh, but it's amazing. You know, I, I would never, ever have predicted this much choice, you know, as a comic nerd growing up, you know, I used to have a paper route and I would hang out at the comic shop on, uh, in Kitsilano where I grew up in Vancouver. And, uh, I'd spend so much money on comics and I would read them and, and just dream that one day there would be movies that were as cool as this, let alone television shows every week. It's mind blowing. Uh, John R. Martin, Question, we've been hearing the traditional TV at the end of its life for a while now. Doesn't it seem silly to want launch a Marvel series on a traditional network, giving its success on Netflix? Um, the idea of traditional network television is definitely evolving into something else. And there are, you know, cable subscription rates are down and, and media uh, profits are down and advertising. But it's a long way from dying. And one of the things that the networks are kind of doing right now is, uh, well, one of the other things that's really happened is, I, I, from my vantage point, is that loyalty for networks has really dissipated. You know, like people just don't follow along and watch must-see TV, NBC, like from 7 until 10, uh, like they used to with Friends and all these other shows that would sort of populate around it. People don't kind of do that anymore. There's no loyalty to networks. Um, and so what's become really powerful for these studios and these media companies is branded entertainment or show content out there that they uh, can apply their network brand to. And that's the only sort of distinction. But they all take these this ownership position. And what happens with these shows is that in the sort of network television world, if they have an audience that sustains them, they basically just with advertising rates, right? Like they just have to have enough of an, adver uh, an advertiser-friendly base that they can uh, sort of support the production costs. That's not where the network makes its money. The network 
um, decides then, okay, well, we've got this asset that we can sell again and again. And of course, the more episodes that they make, the, the, the more that they can do with it. Um, syndication was the way before, but now everybody binges and everybody wants to see everything on Amazon or Netflix or whatever. Netflix can't buy all the shows. They can't make all the shows. They look like they are, though. I mean, they're spending a fortune over there and they're gaining, uh, you know, mass amount of subscribers and Amazon's trying to counter that right now, too. But the networks, I think, are really, they're kind of trying to stave off the, you know, their, the end of their relevancy for as long as they can and just sort of, you know, prop up as much of an advertiser base as they can to keep investing in these scripted shows. Because inevitably, if the shows are solid enough, they become a, a, a saleable asset that can be, you know, um, disseminated in a million different ways. And Netflix is obviously one of the key ones out there. That all brings back some pretty you know, massive revenue back to these networks. And that's why network television is fine for a while. Um, but it will be become a tougher road, I think, out there as well, because, uh, you know, YouTube now is, is getting into the TV business, right? They're going to have YouTube live, and I think it's available already, um, where you can watch live television on YouTube as well, which will then sort of siphon viewers off to more YouTube content. And then YouTube will probably take some of the revenue that they're making from this to invest in better programming. Um, and there's just going to be much more competition and many, many more sh screens and streams that are going to take people away from what we have known as traditional television. The way I've always looked at it is that, like, people ask me what I do when I say I make TV, you know, and I still do what I've always done. I still talk to a camera and we still edit and we still put it together and we, we try to make it look as much like television as we can. I think it's, I don't like to hear that TV is dead. I just think that what what's really happening is TV is morphing into something much broader. And I don't think that the traditional te television network uh, or the cable network can exist as it was without sort of morphing into um, these other these other ways, these other distribution mechanisms that are out there. But, you know, there's a great example in, uh, and two great examples in how to kind of play this, uh, this transition away from being loyal to network television. AMC has been posting, you know, sending out their shows with AMC in the title, AMC's Walking Dead, AMC's Into the Badlands, forever. And that gets people kind of associating the show and the network together, you know, AMC's Comic Book Men. And uh, I think we're probably going to start to see that a lot more with, uh, with shows that are on specific networks, you know, provided the, the deal is structured for programming to be built that way. HBO is the other one that's doing that as well. And then we're going to see with the Star Trek Discovery show, CBS is going to get into uh, its own delivery of its own uh, subscription app as well. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I think... Uh, I, I hear it isn't TV dead, and TV isn't dead. I was just at a TV conference, and you can see there's a lot of money. I was at MIP TV in Cannes this week. You can see there's a lot of money still being made in television out there. People still, I mean, people every day ask, when are we coming back to, to TV? Why aren't we on TV? And there's an, there's an amazing, I, I don't know, there's this amazing benefit from television where you get content just streamed to you. You don't have to go and find it or be led to it. You just have it come to you. And uh, 
I mean, certainly you can set up, you know, apps on your computer or you can have some streaming apps or a, a sort of a playlist put together for yourself on an Apple TV or something. Uh, but there is this, this wonderful uh, benefit to being on television is too. I mean, the other thing that happens with televisions is that, and television networks and television programming is that you reach a lot of people in the same room. And one thing that I've certainly discovered in our transition to uh, being sort of digital only is uh, um, we get, you know, I, I would love more viewers, but we get thousands of people watching our content. And But I feel like most of the people that are watching our content are watching it by themselves. And when we were on television, uh, we would have families watch the material together. Not all the time, but um, I would hear that a lot. And that's one thing that I definitely miss about TV, and one thing that I think uh, attracts a lot of people to TV, whether you're an advertiser or a content maker, is that you can, you know, have a, a couch and a chair filled with family members all watching something together, and that's that's pretty damn rewarding. That's pretty damn cool, you know. So TV isn't going to be dead, and certainly when you have a uh, a show like The New Warriors on an, on a family network for ABC. That's what they're saying is we want you to watch this with your kids or your teenagers or whatever. Watch it together. And, and you, you, uh, you know, moms and dads that have grown up with comic books, you'll find something out of this as well. And then, you know, you can have a conversation. You know, this I'm in the marketing room right now for New Warriors for some reason. <laughs> you can have a conversation uh, about uh, why superhero stories are still relevant and, and you can stay with them. And then you can introduce them to darker things like Watchmen and Deadpool and and, uh, you know, carry on that way. So t I don't think TV is dead. Um, uh, not yet. Uh, Link 57, I watch YouTube on my TV with the PS4. That's awesome. That's awesome. So am, am I on your TV right now? That'd be rad. Um, oh, Mo B's got a great and important question. Uh, what's Eva Green like in person? She smells great. And um, she was very nice. And I, the, you know what? One thing that I've discovered with... Um, celebrities and and famous actors and things like that over the years is that uh, the the and this is totally general but I feel like the the people that are good people are the ones you see keep working you know um, that's not always true there are dicks that work absolutely uh, because they're good um, or they're bankable uh, but I think that when you see an actor kind of transition from project to project to project to project and they seamlessly do it and they're consistent and they're solid, I think at their core, and I don't, I don't know Eva Green. I just met her very briefly and took a, a couple of pictures with her, and, and, uh, but she was very nice and very sweet and down to earth. Um, but I got the sense that she was a good person. I got the sense that she was cool. Definitely felt that way about Jeff Bridges, who I met at the same time that day. Um, and... You know, just my observation is that a lot of the, the the actors that that stick with it and have long careers. You know, I got I've gotten to know uh, William Campbell, Billy Campbell, um, the guy that played the Rocketeer, and he's an amazing guy. You know, and and he's gone from project to project to project. He he's been working in uh, Ontario. Thank you, Eric. That's very sweet. Thank you very much. Uh, he's been working in Ontario um, uh, on uh, what's the Cardinal, but he. You know, he's, he just lives his life. He just has a, like a, 
he he made a decision that he wasn't going to wait for calls as an actor because that's one of the things the un, un sort of spoken thing about uh, about acting is that you wait for your your breaks you know and uh, and you you kind of have to wait until somebody says okay we're going to hire you for something and that can be kind of stifling right because you can't just go traveling and leave and do um, I guess maybe less so now with everybody having mobile technology and stuff but Billy. Uh, a uh, number of years ago, I'm sure if you ever listened to our, our conversation, we had a couple podcasts with him. He, he said, uh, um, uh, screw it, I'm not going to wait by the phone for an acting gig. I'm going to go, I read the sailing book, and I'm going to go sail around the world. And so he started to do that. And I think it, it uh, brought him out of Hollywood, and it sort of showed him the world. And, and uh, you know, when we met him uh, with the show and then got to know him a little bit through working with him and, and interviewing him. And he appeared at the, you know, our booth at Fan Expo and, and uh, uh, Canadian Video Game Awards and stuff. He's just an awesome dude, you know. And I, just over the years, I've been lucky enough to meet um, people on sets or at events or whatever. And one thing I've definitely noticed is that good people, and again, totally general, but good people, you see them keep working. So if you ever see... You know, you love an actor, you liked an actor in a, in a special, in a show or something, and they just were really good there, and then they've disappeared, and you just never see them again. Chances are, there was something behind the scenes that wasn't wasn't so cool. They pissed somebody off somehow. Uh, now, behind the scenes, there's also a bunch of that too, right? Like, it's a it's an interesting thing. This this whole. Uh, making video content and, and uh, making movies and things like that. There are a lot of egos on the line, and, and uh, uh, that's, it's interesting. Uh, anyways, uh, we always stream you to TV via iPad and Apple TV. Feels just like cable, M. Landry. Thank you so much. It's very sweet. I, um, I, this is why I love doing this. This is incredible. I, lo- I just love being able to... You know, it would be amazing if I had 50 pop-up windows and had everybody being able to chat. It would be crazy to try to figure that audio-wise, but it would be... Uh, it's like you guys are all with me on the show, which is amazing. Uh, I don't... Uh, Swan Gore, Donnie S. Hi, Donnie, says, I don't think Jeff Bridges had to stretch his acting chops to play the dude. I think he's much like that in real life, laid back. Yeah, Jeff Bridges is a personal hero. That guy's amazing. He's, uh, he's a guy that... Uh, he has a sparkle in his eye, and he just has a, a smile, and he seems to genuinely love these weird experiences that he's been able to have his whole life. He doesn't take them for granted. Um, he seems like he really enjoys people. I, I think if anybody knows about him, they know that he's a photographer, and he shoots lots of pictures on all the sets that he works with, and he befriends everybody around him. And he's a consummate professional, like in terms of uh, what he commits to and and uh, and the work that that I mean this is all I don't know Jeff Bridges that well <laughs> or at all either I've met him uh, but this is all just from watching interviews and and hearing stories about him you know like he worked with the Disney uh, interactive people on the Tron game and and got to know some of the people in the, in the Vancouver office we we did the uh, the making of that game and just to hear stories about their interactions with Jeff. Bridges, who I don't know that well, stop calling them by their first name, um, was rad. You know, it makes you love and respect a person even more, you know, when they turn out to be better or as good as you hoped so, you know, you hoped they would. Uh, and the way that I met Jeff, I did this, uh, it was at Comic-Con, and I did this really cool thing. I don't normally get to do that. Most of my work at Comic-Con over the years has been uh, uh, waiting on a press line and then 
you know, people come down the, the carpet and I talk to them um, and have an interview and, you know, some interaction with them that way. But I went to this thing because I had three teams running at, at Comic-Con and, and three cameras and three hosts. And so I wasn't needed on, in front of the camera, but I was curious about this lineup of, uh, of uh, Warner Brothers movies that were coming. And they had this kind of four hour stretch where they were bringing in directors and actors and, and uh uh, people to talk about a, a succession of, of movies. And it was uh, the Seventh Son movie, which came and went at the box office. I've, I've heard it's terrible. I have only been able to watch about 20 minutes of it, and it was click. Uh, but Br- Jeff, was, Jeff Bridges was there, not Jeff. Jeff Bridges was there. And uh, afterwards, I, I couldn't help myself. I, after his little panel speak, and we were asking questions and stuff, and everybody was answering. But after that, I, I ran up to him. I said, dude, I... I don't think I said dude, but Mr. Bridges, may I have a, a photo with you? And he was like, of course, man. And we, it, was, it was probably my best, my best picture ever obtained at Comic-Con right there. The Eva Green one was, was good, too. Maybe a close second there. Uh, JBA, JBJ Blaze, TFA, Vic, if you want a lesser delay with chat response, you'd love the crap out of Beam with its faster-than-light feature. I've heard good things about Beam. should check that out for sure. Um, yeah, so Jeff was on the show off camera, really good interview. He was off, oh, on the show off camera, right. He was off camera on our show and I, I, okay. <laughs> uh, Brian M seems like YouTube is a much larger, larger audience. Um, okay. So we're going to clip, click, uh, click on this clip. So this is Squirrel Girl and the new Warriors, which is coming soon. That was a nice big announcement and a surprise. We heard about this, but then they just went straight to series. So that's a pretty big deal. Hopefully that's a, an amazing new show. Uh, Mass Effect Andromeda has been upgraded. So this is, you know, arguably one of the biggest stories of, uh, of the week. Uh, you broke my brain. You did, Donnie. Uh, Mass Effect Andromeda 1.05 is the latest. Um, we got the letter from uh, uh, the uh, the general manager of uh, of uh, Bioware this week as well. Um, I think that I, my heart goes out to these people. I mean, uh, some of you may have watched my stream um, of sort of my early thoughts on the game. And uh, I think there's tons to love in this game, tons to be really, really into for sure. And certainly like things like this where you're in the combat sequences and you're jumping around, this stuff all looks really, really cool and it handles well. Um, and you know, I got some feedback and some comments too in that video uh, and that discussion that I had with everybody um, bringing up Dragon Age and saying that uh, Dragon Age didn't look great, Dragon Age Inquisition. But the thing about Dragon Age, and I, I actually loved that game. It was our game of the year that year, and I thought it was amazing. But the thing about Dragon Age is that you didn't compare it to the previous games and uh, think less of it, you know? Like, it, it was a marked improvement over what had come in the Dragon Age series before. And Mass Effect Andromeda, in certain ways, has some really cool, compelling sort of, uh, you know, moves towards being a much more approachable and accessible action game. Uh, and, and, you know, I think that there's a refinement there that you can, is unquestionable. You can see all of that, but there's also a built-in familiarity with a lot of that, um, the sort of core mechanics of the game that are a little underwhelming because you'd want there to be, uh, you know, some, some, uh, brand new things in this, in this game right out of the gate that you'd never seen in a Mass Effect before, uh, or a much higher profile look at that stuff. But I think, 
where Mass Effect has really shocked everybody. And it's not just because we're being accustomed to better looking games and we're all becoming graphic, you know, whores. I hate that term. Uh, but it's just that the last three Mass Effect games were so good looking, you know. They were such beautiful games that there was an expectation once we went to this uh, – that's the next story. Once we went to these new platforms and this next iteration of Mass Effect that, you know, this next gen, that it was just going to knock us on our ass, that it was going to be, you know, animations and, and character constructions that just blew us away. Visual fidelity that we rarely encounter in video games. And that expectation, I think, is a justified one. And I think that the anger and the disappointment that has come because Mass Effect didn't hit those marks has also been justified. But I cannot help but feel, um, I, I don't know, heartbroken for the team that worked on this game, you know, because there are so many contributors, so many different people that, that worked on so many minute and, and polished and, and uh, iterated on little elements to build this thing. And I feel like they... they I, I just feel bad for them, you know, because it's clear there's a, there is a lot there. There's a good game there. And now what's happened is Bioware has to commit to fixing it and making it better. And so we're going to see this stream of updates. And 1.05, and I have to be honest, I was away when this all went down, so I haven't booted up the game again. I haven't, I've decided that I, I don't really want to until it's a, it's like a, a huge update and it's like okay well now let's really play it and let's get back into it and that's unfortunate right i mean the the release date should have been the release date it should have been the day where i was like this is this is our mark this is it you know we're hitting this and and uh we're gonna blow you away and now it feels like that flag had to be pushed back a few months you know i mean they're gonna go back and, and fix things in this game um, interactions with characters and, you know, there's some people getting uh, that have had collision issues and, and characters stuck in T-poses and things like that. They're going to fix a lot of that stuff, but what is a player supposed to do? Are they supposed to go back and play the game again? They've played it. They've got the story. They got to that point. They've streamed that video. Are they supposed to just forget that they've had those experiences and go back and play it again? It's, uh, it's all so unfortunate, and I feel like the, the thing that should have happened is there should have been a much more stringent approval process. Even at the 11th hour, even with uh, three weeks to go, EA and Bioware should have concluded that the release date had to change, and they should have, they should have changed it. They just should have changed it. And it would have pissed everybody off, and you know, probably you know, retailers and, and shipping partners and all kinds of stuff, but... It's just such a goddamn unfortunate thing, you know? Like, this is an amazing franchise. It's, it's, it's changed perceptions of video games for a lot of people. It's changed lives for a lot of people. It's, it's an important piece of cultural work. And I, it still is. It's not like it's all been just destroyed by Mass Effect Andromeda. Uh, but it's been dimmed in a, in a major way, you know? And now... I don't know, man. Like, I, I, it's just, it's, it, like, it's just hard not to be sad about it. Still, even like weeks after I've done my, uh, my initial talk on it, and, and, uh, 
you know, now we're seeing the update, the updates start happening and the letters start happening. And I just want them to get to a point where they say, okay, well, this is it. We've totally fixed everything. And uh, I don't know, they have to do something for the players that bought in and have sort of put up with a lot of stuff, maybe give them free DLC or some something, some some kind of win back or, um, yeah, but it's it just breaks my damn heart, you know, because a lot of people, a lot of really proud developers worked on this very hard and it's, uh, it's just not where it's supposed to be um, and it will hopefully get there. Uh, but, you know, let me know if you've played the game, if you feel I'm being too hard on it. Uh, you know, I'm trying to respect, I do respect the team and I respect all of the work and all of, all of the reasons why this happened. I get it, but I just feel like the brakes should have been put on and, and people said, and the people should have said, this is not good enough. This is not, we can't ship like this. We can't have characters with googly eyes and weird animations. And we gotta, we gotta, we gotta take the time, you know, we gotta do this right. And uh, I think we would have been cool, even if it was a week before it was supposed to be out. And they said, nope, we're going to wait. We'll give you another three months or four months. Fred Wicks coming off Zelda and Horizon. Uh, Mass Effect was a lunch bag letdown. Yeah. Mass Effect has been my Star Wars, M. Landry says. Missed out on experiencing Star Wars as a kid. And so this release was pretty disappointing. Guess it's my Phantom Menace. <laughs> Ouch, man. That's like a knife to the gut right there. Uh, Lee Fan BEA doesn't give a beep. Look at what they did with Titanfall 2, which is an amazing game. Uh, my face hurts, lady. <laughs> Laugh out loud from Link57. Yeah. Uh, comment. This is from Lou uh, Sits, Sitsma. Lou Sitsma. Vic, have you seen the new IT trailer? Oh, it trailer. 197 million hits in the first 24 hours. I have seen that trailer. It looks uh, suspiciously like um, uh, Stranger Things in some ways, uh, and also the original it trailer. Um, it looks creepy as hell. I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, Eric Timmer, I'll buy ME when they fix it and it drops in price a bit. Yeah, and I think that's the other, that's the other fallout from this, um, no pun intended, that's, that's the other thing that's happened here is that a lot of people have just said, okay, well, we'll just wait, you know? And what kind of damage does that do to EA's future business? But honestly, every publisher of every massive game out there, you know, does... Does that put that suspicion blinder on everybody? Does everybody go, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Remember what happened with Andromeda? I'm not buying this at launch. And then what happens to these teams if if people don't buy these games at launch because they want to wait till you know all the the kinks are ironed out and and uh, the pr the thing goes on sale? You know, yeah, it's it's a mess. It's a mess. It's mess effect, right? Oh, terrible. Uh, Ken Craddock says, "Hey, Vic, it's me. It's Kenny. Hey, Kenny, it's me. It's Vic." Uh, he says, I rule, buddy. Thanks, buddy. Love you, Kenny. Um, it has dropped in price, yeah. See, Mass Effect has dropped in price, but the 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 damage isn't necessarily... It's, it is to Mass Effect for sure, but it's like the business now is going to be... It's another one of those games. It's another one of those launches. It's like, um, uh, you know, SimCity, right? Like, it's one of those things where it's... Or it was Diablo 3 was online and everything crashed. Where the everybody can use it as ammunition now for every choice that they make, you know. And those opening windows um, become more in jeopardy, 
because that trust is starting to get broken. And, uh, you know, when you, ha- when you have A, fewer AAA titles in the pipeline, and B, a title that's, you know, the fourth in a franchise and coming off of, uh, you know, one of the best kind of uh, runways you can imagine, uh, on new, new platform, new hardware, at 4K resolution, hyped up at a huge 4K event, uh, it looks like everything's figured out. You know, it looks like this is going to be a gangbuster title. And when it doesn't, it's like, whomp, and then everybody kind of steps back a little bit and says, well, who else is going to do that, you know? And, and uh, where's my, am I going to do this $60 risk again, you know? Uh, okay. Ryan Govier says, I only buy NetherRealm and Rockstar at full price, everything else on sales. Yeah, I mean, that's what starts to happen. Uh, Brian M., another reason to never pre-order games, just wait for the EP review. Um, yeah, it's tricky, man. This pre-order th- business is, uh, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of the console industry, a lot of what we love out of AAA is really predicated on the, on the pre-order success, right? The, that props up uh, store revenue. It props up the retail investment on promotion. It props up the advertising spend. Um, all of that stuff helps, which I know none of that sounds like development, but all of that money being churned helps development, you know, because you guys got to remember that this is a hit-driven industry, and it's the hits that keep all of the risks up. We need the hits, so we have the risks. We need EA to make money on FIFA every year so that they can try some funky little things like Unravel, even though that didn't do so well for anybody. But uh, you know what I'm saying? It's like we... and consumers need to be smart too. They need to they need to not get ripped off. They need to you know also express themselves. And when a game like Mass Effect comes out and really disappoints them, feel free to let everybody know about it. You know, like this is that, that's why it's challenging. That's why this business has, has been so fraught with pitfalls along the way. No pun intended. Uh, you know, there's just been it, it's an incredibly complex industry, and and you have to be ahead of expectation and technology and and uh the competition there's just so many things that can crumble and go wrong and uh you know and pe- keeping people jazzed enough and, and excited enough and and in uh, belief enough to, that they're going to pre-order after debacle launches like mass effect andromeda becomes increasingly more difficult and suddenly we see things like uh, you know, stores close and developers go out of business and stuff. Uh, EA released Titanfall right next to Battlefield 1, yes, and then there's silly decisions like that as well. Question from The Last Disciple. Any comments on the whole Gearbox and uh, G2A Bulletstorm full clip fiasco? I don't even know about that fiasco. That just launched this week. I don't know what happened there. Uh, feel free to let me know about it, um, and we'll we'll dig into it. If it's a rundown story, we'll put it in the rundown. Uh, yeah, the Master Chief Collection, that thing was still broken to this day, Link 57. Yeah, yeah. We have to continue to support the industry as gamers. Pre-order, buy new where possible and when you can. Fred Wicks. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah, you have to be a smart consumer for sure. But part of that awareness of your your participation in all this is knowing that your dollars support future development as well. 
You know, it's not just about sticking it to EA or screwing this retailer or whatever and deciding you're only going to buy used games on uh, eBay or what. It, it's, yes, there's some truth into in the, in the fact that when you invest, not necessarily through a pre-order, but when you buy a new game, you are investing back into the business as well. You are saying, I believe that uh, you, game company, are uh, have my interests at heart, and you're going to make games that I'm really, really blown away by. Now, now you don't blindly walk into purchasing every single thing that the games industry churns out, um, but it is. It's kind of a an, an implied two-way street there, you know. And and unfortunately, as um, as great a business as it's been in the, for GameStop and EA and other people that have participated in the used game sales market. That really doesn't help the bottom line of the game companies, you know. It just gives people, uh, you know, the, an aftermarket kind of uh, marketing bump or an awareness kind of thing. But, yeah, I mean, the uh, the business survives uh, based on the sales of games. And, and what's kind of true about games is that there are, like, maybe 20 or 30 that are kind of profitable in a year or, like, really successful in a year. And those 20 or 30, I'm talking to AAA – because it's a whole different scale of economies when you're talking about uh, a team of two people to five people or ten people that build an indie game. They don't need to make and sell, you know, millions and millions and millions of units in order to kind of keep the lights on. Um, uh, but in, in terms of AAA, yeah, it's 20, 30 games a year maybe that 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 uh, flesh out a catalog, you know, and and keep us entertained throughout the year. And a couple of big things did happen. Um, with games that deserve more love, and are, I'm glad to hear the the good news around uh, Near Automata, which is an amazing game, and also Persona Five. It's uh, Near Automata crossed a million units, which is a big deal because it's kind of a quirky, uh, you know, kind of strange platinum games uh, action RPG that you would suspect would not be for everyone, but it seems to be for a lot of people, and that's fantastic. And uh, Persona 5 has done uh, 1.5 million out there uh, in sales, in units, uh, which is fantastic. It's probably one of the, uh, the biggest launches for uh, the Persona games. Brilliant. Uh, and they've also had a lot of weird news about uh, what you can stream and what you can't stream and threats uh, going out to people that stream specific parts of the game. Very interesting. And it's opened up a whole new conversation now with uh, how much publishers are going to intervene and... and uh, and, and force people not to reveal stuff. I mean, Mass Effect, Bioware, oh man, think of the damage that's been done to the Mass Effect game because of streaming, because of sharing all of that stuff. But rightly so. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to watch the story around Mass Effect Andromeda. Uh, okay, uh, current-gen system wars were originally not going to play used games on launch. That's right, Fred. That's right. Yeah, a lot of things changed based on Microsoft's early decisions on that. Uh, Vic, the show looks absolutely amazing. Is this our show? That's great if it does. Okay. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure what you're talking about, Sean Capri, but uh, you gave us three exclamation marks. I'm giving you three thumbs up. Actually, I was like four or five. Um, where the hell is we happy few? This is Michael Holden. Good question, Michael Holden. And the answer is, uh, early access is kind of a bummer. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of cool. 
if you want to kind of follow a development uh, story for many multiple months and sort of be a part of the community that helps to change and better a game. Uh, but as I think a, a consumer or, you know, someone like me that reports on a lot of this stuff, it's like these things just have this, this never-ending shelf life that just doesn't go away, but you don't know when you actually jump in. Like, when do you play the game? Like, what, is it ready? Is it, is it time? Is it safe? You just don't know when it's uh, the appropriate sort of time, time to jump in, you know? Um, and that's the, sta- that's the status with We Happy Few. It's been in, uh, in uh, early access. I think it's on Xbox One. You can play it now on, on PC uh, for a long time, and it's not even complete. And they've just done the um, – this was another story, a recent story. They've just done the deal for a We Happy Few uh, movie. So all of these things are happening, but the game, finished game, still not with you. Uh, right on, Sean. You're the best, man. Thank you. Uh, okay, um, let's move on to uh, our final story, which is the story that makes me the happiest. This is Invincible. Now, this is a comic book um, that you all should read. It's phenomenal. Uh, it's from Robert Kirkman, who kind of upended the the whole comics industry with his very mature stories in recent years. Uh, and yes, this is a superhero tale, but it's unlike other superhero tales out there because um, it gets incredibly violent and there's a huge twist and it's shocking and you, you can't believe it as you're reading it. And I'm not going to spoil it right now, but the fact that this is being made into a movie and Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg are going to be directing it and writing it and working with Kirkman to get it made. Skybound is involved. That's Kirkman's company. Um, and they're going to treat it right. It's going to be a big budget flick that I, I feel like Deadpool just, and Ryan Reynolds has to be thanked for this, but I think he has just blown the doors open on uh, the risks that, that huge companies are going to take on superhero stories and fantasy stories, to be quite honest. You know, everybody wants that success for sure. So money is a, a driving factor. Uh, but that money is only going to continue to grow and come if uh, the risks are taken. And Invincible is kind of a big risk. And that's, I think, a big reason why uh, it's taken so long for this, this book to get uh, adapted. It starts off almost like a Spider-Man story, you know, like he's a young guy, he's in his teens and, and he's got a girlfriend and, and, uh, and it just escalates and escalates and escalates. And, and uh, you know, there's a lot of super heroic stuff and other characters that have powers and it just gets so freaking cool. And I don't know where in the timeline they're going to place the movie, um, but I am so excited. Anybody out there read Invincible? Anybody up on this story? Are you as excited as I am for this show, for this movie? Mm. Oh, yeah, I have to wait for about five minutes here. Uh, people still watch Walking Dead. That's from uh, Leaf Fan B. Um, I'm still watching The Walking Dead. It's uh, it's definitely a, a weird, drawn-out season, and I uh, haven't been a fan of the garbage people, and, and uh, I'm not going to spoil too much about that because people like to binge when it's all done. Um, but Negan, of course, is the big guy now with the baseball bat. That opening scene in that first episode, I, it's still haunting. I still close my eyes and I can still see it. And I, I was repulsed. It was just too much. Um, in keeping, I think, with the dark tones of the book. Uh, but there's a remove when you want, look at it, especially it's a lot of black and white art in the comic book. And when you see it all in glorious, you know, technicolor on, t- on TV, 
and oh, it was just shocking. But then there's been a lot of just like treading water, and it's been very slow and you know repeat kind of story themes. Um, yeah, it's time for Walking Dead, and the producers are promising this with season eight. It's time for them to kind of step on the gas and you know point us in the idea that there might be resolution, there might be um, an end to to the. Uh, to the story, you know, they they've had some threads and some some roads where you think, okay, we're gonna get some answers about stuff, and then they just sort of deviate back to, uh, you know, they find a town and they get raided by humans and they got to fight the humans and it, you know, and this this season has felt kind of ponderous, um, but uh, let's see what happens with Invincible. Comment from Mr. Brockerock. Seth Rogen, another superhero movie. We're giving him another shot after Green Green Hornet. I didn't hate Green Hornet. I wasn't, it wasn't amazing. Uh, it was amazing that they cast him as a superhero, but, uh, you know, Seth Rogen's a pretty prolific creator. I think he's got a lot of passion. His Preacher series was pretty cool. Um, you know, he wants to stretch out. He wants to show what else he's capable of and he's got pull you know um you know what's incredible is like we're seeing they're producing a a movie about the console wars as well i think it's i don't know if it's a documentary or or a uh, um uh, a fictional tale or a scripted tale uh but it's amazing to see this this avalanche of nerds that have taken over and like just are doing all of these stories for us now, like Phil Lord and Chris Miller, the Lego movie people. Um, you know, now they're doing Han Solo. They're doing the, the Han Solo exclusive. Uh, Ryan Johnson doing episode eight, like uh, Guillermo del Toro and, and the amazing, incredible art that he, he produces for us. You know, even legendary pictures, you look at that company, it's like, well, you are the nerd factory. You came up with all kinds, and I'm totally, I hate that term. I hate being dismissive or derogatory because it's pop culture. It's the biggest pop culture in the world, always has been. Just took forever for the world to understand that. Uh, But it's like legendary saw this audience and said, well, we'll just focus on making the Comic-Con movies, you know, the movies that will just play so well. They don't always do that, but... uh, um, it, you know, that, that kind of thinking is just so pervasive. But now it is so pervasive that you kind of have to counterculture it a little bit. And you've got to come in and, and uh, surprise the hell out of us. That's what Deadpool did. And I think Invincible stands a really good shot to do it. And Seth Rogen, I think, is, is uh, a proven enough creator to be a part of that team. And, you know, like when you look at Rogen and Will Ferrell, incredibly talented human beings, um, but if... I just think that Seth Rogen is definitely thinking of things in a much smarter, long-term diversification kind of way. You know, Will Ferrell has kind of hit this road, and he's amazing, and I hate to talk about him like he's over the hill or whatever. He's so funny. He's not over the hill. He's got a long career still ahead of him, but he has kind of chosen a path as opposed to uh, maybe taking a more risky set of roads and trying to get other types of projects off the ground and, and uh, show different shades of himself. Um, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, who sticks longer, you know, who, who's going to be building things that we're all watching for a longer period of time. So I applaud Seth Rogen and his buddy, Evan Goldberg, who they've collaborated on a lot of stuff. Um, question, since Ghost of the Shell movie didn't do so well, do you think the door is closed for Hollywood anime films? 
I think a lot of important lessons were learned on on uh, Ghost in the Shell. I think the whitewashing issue, which you know, um, it, it isn't so horrific in that movie. To be frank, that I, you know, I was offended all the way through. You can certainly see exactly. Uh, you can see why the choice was made to kind of, you know, on a business case to put Scarlett Johansson in, in the lead. She's terrific, and she does a good job in the movie. Um, but I think the story around it is is uh, an important one, and it's an important lesson for Hollywood. And, and frankly, Hollywood does need to diversify, needs to uh, come up with stories for more people out there. The fact that the international audience is such a big component of the the budgeting for these movies should also speak to the casting choices and decisions there. And Hollywood should stretch out its radar to find more interesting people and, and uh, um, you know, characters and actors that are going to resonate culturally in many more places, you know, and uh, um, be truthful to their source material. And, and I, you know, you can make the case for casting Scarlett Johansson for this movie um, in a number of ways, but it didn't help that they cast her, clearly. And one of the ways that it didn't help is the fact that she's based on a Japanese character and she's actually playing a Japanese character. Um, and, uh, you know, that wasn't my big contention with the film or my big issue with the film. My, my issue with the film was that it felt kind of uh, um, too little too late. Like we've seen imagery like this in so much science fiction, uh, you know, in large part due to the, the influence that Ghost in the Shell animated was. Um, but it was also not as, you know, it, was, it wasn't an R-rated movie. It wasn't sort of uh, playing with our mind as much and resonating as much as the original anime did. So now when they look at things like Akira, uh, I think they need to cast accordingly. I, need to th I think they need to think accordingly. And the other thing that they need to do is not just look at the source and say, well, let's make the source because not enough people have seen it. Because the, the first people in the door are the people that already know the property. So surprise them. Make them, um, you know, completely shocked by, uh, in a good way, of choices that you've made that honors the original stuff, but also takes us to new places within the context of the, of the anime that we're familiar with. So, uh, yeah, I think that there's going to be a lot of risk-averse uh, uh, decisions that come into play um, based on anime in the future. Uh, but hopefully one of them is to, uh, one of them that, that will happen is that people will, uh, be, uh, willing to risk a little bit more with, uh, you know, traditionally with casting, uh, people that are more appropriate for the, for the source material. But yeah, it's going to be a while. It's going to be, it's probably going to slow down development of more anime stuff out there. Uh, Victor, are you familiar with a superhero named Captain Canuck? I am, but I always uh, mistake him or mix him up with um, The Guardian, which was part of Alpha Flight, or Guardian, part of Alpha Flight, uh, the, uh, the Marvel series. Uh, I think John Byrne created that. Um, but uh, yeah, Captain Canuck, I think, and, and Guardian, they both had red and white costumes or something like that. Um, but yeah, I've seen, I've seen some stuff on, on Captain Canuck. Obviously, a Canadian superhero. I, I think Seth Rogen will do well. Maybe work with Joseph Gordon-Levitt again. Yeah, that'd be cool. You should check out Film Theory on YouTube. They interview the writer of The Walking Dead. They're slowing down the storyline on purpose. One, Alex Peters. That's a great suggestion. That sounds like a cool site or a cool YouTube channel. 
Uh, Link 57, Scarlett Johansson did fine. The movie's plot sucked. You know, yeah, make it make it rated R. You know what was interesting about Ghost in the Shell is that they they talk about the um, you, you know the emerging with machines kind of element as the the through line in the story there. Um, but the movie launches the same week that Elon Musk's story of launching Neuralink has hit news, you know, news sites all over the world. And, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. And that's that completely undermines any sense of awe that we might have with Ghost in the Shell. So what I've heard is that there's a reboot, and we talked about it, I think, in today's rundown, is a reboot of uh, or some kind of new Ghost in the Shell animated property coming too. They have to be more forward-thinking than that as well. We already understand that we are, uh, you know, part machine. We already are cyborgs. Uh, tell us something we don't know, you know? And uh, I think the movie's kind of guilty of that. Uh, okay, question from Brian Arsenal. Why do you th- what do you think they are going to do with Cyborg and Justice League with his origin when they, when they did it in BVS and you see him in the trailer with no armor? Uh... I think what I've heard about the Justice League uh, cyborg stuff is that he's going to be, it, it's going to, a big deal of, a big chunk of the movie is going to deal with him and his origin story. So they're going to see, we're going to see Victor Stone. I think that that's his image of him on the football field. We're going to see the damage that's done to him. We're going to see the father going crazy to try to fix him. Um, and I think they try to, to define this. I mean, this is the big challenge that they have with Justice League, right? They have all these characters, the Flash is, uh, you know, far ahead, no pun intended, because, (laughs) why do I keep doing that? Uh, Because of the TV show, uh, and there's familiarity there, but then, of course, there's the built-in confusion as to why Grant Gustin isn't our Flash and that terrible costume. Um, Aquaman, we are slightly familiar with because he's been in pop culture and on, you know, Batman Brave and the Bold and Super Friends and all kinds of stuff. He's been, uh, they had Aquaman, I think, they did a pilot for him for the CW I don't know. Oh, he was in. Yeah, they had an Aquaman in the uh, in the old Smallville TV show as well. Um, so there's a familiarity built in there. But Cyborg is this one that there is this this crowd of people that are familiar with him. People that grew up with the Teen Titan comics and and the Teen Titans uh, uh, animated properties. But it, he certainly isn't a character that has uh, resonated for decades like the other ones have. Um, and the challenge that that Warner Brothers and DC have now is that they've got all of these interesting characters that they have to slam into a movie and we have to kind of get to know them and also what could possibly be power, powerful enough to really freak these amazing characters out. And uh, that's all within two and a half hours. Um, Whereas instead, the Marvel approach is, you know, build a piece here, build a piece there, build a piece there, get them all together for something huge and ominous, and then break them all apart and keep building little pieces in there. I think in the end, you know, it will all come out in the wash and provided Warner Woman is good and provided that Justice League actually turns out to be a good film, uh, everything will be okay. But it's just a tremendous amount of work for the filmmakers and for the audience to kind of go in and just care about all of this stuff. You know, there's just a lot to be thrust into where you care about them all. But, you know, that being said, I didn't know anything about the uh, Power Rangers and I, I, you know, I certainly didn't don't have the expectation to enjoy the Power Rangers like I do with uh, a Justice League movie. But I ended up really liking the Power Rangers, and they did that. They did introduce five characters and give them origin stories and stayed true to the source material, and they made a fun movie. Johnny hated it. 
because he was familiar with the source material and he wanted them to get into the, the action a lot more, uh, a lot quicker and a lot more often. Um, but I think that is the case of a successful movie crowded with characters where, you know, you kind of got a, a sense of the fun and a sense of each one of them. And it, and it, it came off all right, you know, and they did okay with that, with that movie. Still worried about uh, Justice League, though. Um, question uh, from Dan Caputo. Now that Hugh Jackman has finished playing Wolverine, how do you feel if Marvel went the, with the five foot three yellow and black suited version, pointy ears and all? I think that'd be great. I think they have to do something like, uh, and that's, I, honestly, I think Tom Hardy's an awesome choice for Wolverine in terms of a, an actor that we know already. The smart play would be to cast unknown, somebody that's not being sort of uh, asked, uh, you know, every five minutes to do a movie somewhere else because Wolverine is going to become, um, as he has been, uh, this instrumental character that's important to so many stories across the X-Men universe. So why not cast somebody and let them live in the role like Hugh Jackman has lived in the role? Even as Hugh Jackman's star, this is why I have so much mad respect for that guy. He's another actor that I met ages ago and, and uh, instantly liked him, like just the guy that just paid real attention to you when you spoke with him and it was just really, really nice and really pleasant. And, and every interview I've ever seen of him, he just, he's, he just evokes integrity. But it shows in his work as Wolverine, right? Like this guy was super famous and doing very well and being asked to play all of these roles, offered James Bond, all kinds of stuff. And he just stuck with his commitments. And he did Wolverine as best as he could in sometimes some pretty crappy movies. And still, he was always good. He was always solid as that character. And uh, what a finish for, uh, for Logan, which is one of the best movies of the year. Um, Naleb Makoto saying, shout out to Victor, the Canadian rep we need. Thank you. Thank you very much. Got my Canadian uh, uniform on right now. Uh, I was shocked by how not terrible the Power Rangers movie was. And yes, I grew up with the source material. That's Brian M. Yeah, I was, I was impressed. Uh, Link 57 wants more X23. Is it X23? Write it out for me, X-23 or X-23. I haven't read any X-23 comics, so I'm not sure. Mm. Uh, why hasn't there been a Gargoyles movie? That just popped in my head. Such a good cartoon. Now, that was very cool. I just noticed Vic is using the switch box as a stand for the mic. Is this a comment on how there's nothing to play on it but Zelda? Uh, N-H-S-A-D-M. Um, I... I'm using this because it raises the mic to a proper uh, height for my voice, and it was also lying on the floor because the last stream I had done before I did that was, I think, the unboxing of the uh, the Switch with Johnny. Um, but, yeah, yeah, it's worked out okay. It's it's kind of nice. I don't know if it's, it's appropriate that we have the Nintendo thing upside down like that, but uh, it's all good. Uh, question. Uh, from The Last Disciple, will you be seeing Bon Cop, Bad Cop 2 in theaters? I don't think so. I didn't see the first one at all. Um, I, I have been curious about the movie. I, know, I mean, the fact that there's a sequel and it's a Canadian film, that's pretty damn cool. So I should check it out. But I don't know if I'm going to be making that a theater trip. Uh, it's X-23. Thank you, Mr. Brockerock. I will not make that mistake again. X-23. I was calling her X-23 in my review, I think. My very stunned and emotional review um, after seeing Logan. Wow. What a movie. So good. Um, okay. I think 
Yeah, it's time to wrap it up. I've got to go uh, pick up my kid from uh, from daycare. So uh, I am going to uh, I'm going to wrap it up. But I, I have to thank you all again. Thank you all so much for being with me on these chats and uh, for our rundown recaps. Uh, let's hope we have an even bigger week of news next week. And and uh, I'm actually out of town again next week, so I won't be in the studio for a live uh, rundown recap. But uh, the following week, I will. Maybe we'll do two weeks worth of news. Uh, but uh, I love doing this, and uh, I'm so grateful that you watch. And, uh, you know, please please stay tuned for a whole lot more. We'll be back on Monday. Have yourselves a fantastic weekend. And uh, thank you to all the people. I'm getting lots of thank yous, and you guys are all so sweet. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. We'll see you on Monday. And then it's just me, so i got to turn it off right here.